As a believer, reading God's Word is a critical part of your daily spiritual journey. And because it's so important, we've created a unique new resource to help you immerse yourself in biblical truth and open your eyes to all God's Word has for you. It's a free PDF download called The Word One-to-One that takes you on a guided journey through John chapter one. With biblical text and short commentary, each page provides insights that will strengthen your faith in an easy to read guided format. There's truly no other resource like this. Download your free PDF copy today at premierinsight.org forward slash resources. That's premierinsight.org forward slash resources. Welcome to another classic replay from the archives of Unbelievable. We hope you enjoy the conversation and do let us know what you think. You can email us at unbelievable at premier.org.uk and leave comments on our Facebook page, Premier Unbelievable, or tweet us at unbelievablefe. For many more resources to help both believers and skeptics to explore faith, please visit our website, premierunbelievable.com. Registering there will unlock access to all content on the website, as well as giving you special access through the weekly newsletter to exclusive content such as bonus videos and ebooks. That's premierunbelievable.com. And now, here's today's unbelievable classic replay hosted by Justin Briley from 2016. Well, a very exciting edition of the programme today. We're asking, is the fine-tuning of the universe evidence for God? Now, it's a subject that comes up in one form or another at various points in the course of Unbelievable, the show that aims to get you thinking every Saturday. But we've never done a show that just specifically really focuses in on this topic. So I'm, I'm so happy to have uh, two uh, eminent guests joining me uh, by Skype and by phone to discuss this topic. Robin Collins is Distinguished Professor of Philosophy and Chair of the Department of Philosophy at Messiah College in Grantham, Pennsylvania in the US. He's one of the leading advocates for the argument from fine-tuning as evidence for God. Uh, we're going to be also hearing from Peter Millikan. Now, he's the Gilbert Ryle Fellow and Professor of Philosophy at uh, Hartford College at the University of Oxford. And he uh, was actually uh, part of a debate series, a, a debate tour that went on a few years ago now, uh, where he debated William Lane Craig, and part of their conversation was around the fine-tuning of the universe. And uh, he finds it interesting but not convincing. And so we're going to be hearing their arguments for and against the fine-tuning. And, well, of course, we need to find out what the fine-tuning of the universe is as well in the course of that, for those who perhaps aren't familiar with that concept. And so it's my great pleasure to welcome Robin and Peter onto the programme today. A uh, very good afternoon to you both, gentlemen. Good afternoon. It's great to have you both. Robin, perhaps we'll say hello to you first as someone who's new to the programme. Um, uh, tell us a, a little bit about how you got into your interest in the argument from the fine-tuning of the universe. And perhaps you could very briefly sketch out what the, uh, what the argument is. I have a background in um, graduate school in theoretical physics, and then I went on to um, study philosophy at University of Notre Dame, and I was always interested in arguments for the existence of God. So um, after, shortly after I finished my PhD, I was asked to write for a book 
on topics related to this. And so I chose to write on the fine tuning and think further about it. And so that's how I sort of fell into it. And once I published the first piece, it sort of took off, um, was published in many anthologies. And then I continued work on um, the project. So it really combines an interest in philosophy, religion with my background in um, physics. Just briefly spell out for us then, for those who maybe aren't familiar, what is the argument from the fine-tuning of the universe and how might it provide evidence for the existence of God? Okay, so first of all, I need to explain what the fine-tuning is. So the fine-tuning in its most basic level is the structure of the universe is extremely precisely set for the existence of life, of a certain kind of life I think is relevant, what I call embodied conscious agents that can interact with each other and make choices in um, based on what they take to be moral criteria. Um, so it'd be beings like us, but more general than that, you know, some alien form of intelligence like you would have in ex- uh, the movie Extraterrestrial or you would see on Star Trek would qualify as an embodied conscious agent. And then the further assumption that goes into that is that such beings require stable, reproducible complexity. So the argument is really that things have the universe has to be extremely precisely set in order to get stable, reproducible complexity where the significant complexities involved here where the beings can interact. Mm. So it's an argument about the complexity. Now, then it falls into three categories, at least I break it into three categories, what I call the laws of nature, which are just the general rules by which nature follows. Um, You can think of them as the mathematical formula. So, for example, you have the law that like charges repel each other, unlike charges attract each other, the law of gravity or the Pauli exclusion principle. All these things fall under what I would call the laws of nature. So they have to be just right in order for Um, this form of life to exist um, anywhere in the universe. And then the second um, kind of fine-tuning is that of the constants or the fundamental parameters of physics, depending on what name you want to call them. And they're just fundamental numbers that are plugged in to these equations or laws of physics. For example, there's the gravitational constant G, which determines the strength of um, gravity between... um, any two unit masses a certain distance apart. So um, it's, a, it's the part of Newton's law, F equals G, M1, you know, gravitational constant times the first mass times the second divided by the distance between them squared. So when you, it, it um, helps determine the, the strength of gravity between such mass pairs. Mm-hmm. Um, and then there's a bunch of mm-hmm. other constants like that, like the mass of the proton or mass of the neutron. And then... There is probably the most outstanding case of fine-tuning of them all is the initial distribution of mass energy at the beginning of the universe as given by the um, very low entropy of the universe. And and so that's three different kinds of fine-tuning. Now, this precision is um, a mind-boggling precision. So it's something, there's different ways of formulating the argument, and I think the most intuitive way, and this is not necessarily the way I actually use when I do the more rigorous work on the subject, but the most intuitive way is to think of, you know, when you when you see a coincidence, an ex- 
extreme coincidence. The last thing you want to do is attribute that to being a chance or a brute fact. If the coincidence, there's something special about it. So to be a coincidence in this sense, it has to be something that is very, very improbable. Um, and there's different senses of probability here. One is that there's a an enormous number of equal possible alternatives is one relevant sense. So it's very improbable. And there's something special about it. So for example, if you um, tossed a coin, a two-sided coin, a hundred times in a row, and it came up heads every time, you'd be looking for an explanation. You wouldn't just accept that as um, chance. That would be your last resort. Um, and why? Because it's extremely improbable and there's something special. It came up heads a hundred times in a row, which is about one, one um, part in a million, trillion, trillion of that occurring. Now, any sequence is equally probable, but most of them you wouldn't you'd just say it was chance because there's nothing special about it. So in the case of the universe, there is something extremely special about it. Um, it gives rise to beings like us. And so the last resort is to accept that um, by chance. Now, the probabilities in the sense I talked about are far, far lower in the case of the universe. I mean, mind-bogglingly small. And so it really makes it very difficult to accept that that is simply a result of um, chance. And so then you would look for some kind of explanation. There's um, the theistic explanation that easily accounts for it if once you accept theism. If you accept theism already, then that hypothesis easily accounts for the fine-tuning based on a personal explanation that God desired to be, bring about beings like us. And um, then there's the multiverse explanation, which you have to deal with. I argue that um, the theistic explanation is a much better explanation. That's kind of the basic argument now. Um, the most intuitive version. So I can start with that, but then I might have to refine it later if, if cert under certain objections. Um, Robbie, it, it's in some ways a very complex area. So it's useful often to boil this down into kind of a, an example of, of how unlikely it would be to sort of arrive at these particular numbers um, by chance. I mean, I've, I've heard an example given of, for instance, one of these uh, con the, one of these particular numbers, the, re the the sort of ratio of electrons to protons in the universe and that balance being just right, um, being equivalent to something like piling um, dimes on the whole continent of America all the way up to the moon and then do that again on a million more continents and then mix all the dimes together, paint one red, pick it out, and that's your chances of, of kind of hitting the right, um, the right ratio, as it were. Um, I mean, no, I, would, I wouldn't take that one as being... A good case of fine-tuning because okay. that could easily be explained just by a law that required that the charges balance out. Sure, sure. Well, but, so the the case I would, I mean, the most impressive case of fine-tuning mm. is the initial mass distribution. Uh, I'll give two of them. Okay. So just to give you an idea, mm. um, the one most discussed in the cosmological literature is that of the um, cosmological constant, or really a better name for uh, more accurate would be the dark energy density of the universe, and that is um, has to be fine-tuned within one part in 10 to the 120th power. That's one followed by 120 zeros. That's the usual estimate for that degree of fine-tuning. Um, if it's much, if it's too large, 
as much outside that little range of one part in 10 to the 120th power, um, the universe would ex have expanded too rapidly from the time of the Big Bang in or, um, for galaxies and, and stars to form. And if it was too small, the universe would have collapsed in on itself um, before life could form. Um, now, the, um, so that's really impressive, but the most impressive is the initial distribution of mass energy to give us the low entropy we have throughout the universe um, necessary for life. Um, and in that case, the fine-tuning is one part in 10 raised to the 10 raised to the 123rd power. And to give you some idea how large of that, a number that is in the denominator, um, if you took a, a sheet of paper and put a one on it and then printed zeros everywhere else and then took another sheet of paper and printed all zeros and had a very fast photocopying machine and kept photocopying it and filled the whole universe um, 15 billion light years across with paper and the one followed by all those zeros would be a smaller number than the number you're talking about in that denominator. Okay. So it's, it's a mind-boggling degree of fine-tuning. Yes, it's, it's, it is extraordinary. And, and so uh, the natural explanation from the point of view of theism uh, it would be God. Um, uh, mm. it, it's harder to come up with an explanation, obviously, though people have obviously um, come up with those. And perhaps we'll hear from Peter Milliken about that. But uh, you've, you've laid it out very well there for us, Robert, Robin. Thank you very much for doing that. Um, uh, Peter Milliken, thanks for being on the programme today. Um, it's a pleasure. We, it's great to have you. And um, obviously, we've had to lay out a little bit the, the argument from fine tuning there. Um, you, you, I remember when you did that debate with William Lane Craig, you said that as far as you were concerned, this was one of the best arguments out there for theism, though obviously you haven't found it compelling yourself. Um, what, what's interested you about this argument, though? Yeah, I, 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 soon after I came to Oxford, actually, I found myself in the interesting position of being at, at dinner, s sitting next to Arthur Peacock, hmm. who well known for you know, connecting Christianity and science. And I, I was in the strange position as a non-believer of trying to persuade him that the fine-tuning argument <laughs> was worth taking very seriously. He, <laughs> he, he, he uh, had formed the impression from most people that it wasn't uh, mm. such mm. a popular argument. So, yeah, I've been, I've been quite a fan of the argument for a long time, and it's, um, it's interesting to see how it's become more popular. I mean, to put this in, in context, I mean, I think most of the other arguments for God's existence, the traditional ones like the ontological, the cosmological, the moral argument, I think are, are fundamentally very, very weak. What's unusual about the fine-tuning argument is that it has the right kind of structure to deliver a strong result. And it's interestingly different from the traditional design argument. So the traditional design argument tended to focus on biological nature and the adaptation of animals and plants and indeed ourselves. Now, obviously, that was undercut by Darwin. Um, but there was another big problem about that argument, which David Hume seized on. And, and it was this, that in the design argument, people tend to assume that intelligent design ought to explain biological adaptation. And what Hume pointed out was actually in nature we see it's the other way around. Biology gives rise to minds. We never see minds giving rise to bodies. So 
The problem is, for the theist with that argument, that there's no reason for privileging design. There's no reason for saying, oh, look at all this order in nature, that ought to be explained by design. Um, what Hume would say is, why explain it by that? Why not explain it by generation? Because we see that animal generation gives rise to order, just as, you know, as, as minds do. Mm. The, the really interesting thing from a logical point of view about the fine-tuning argument is that the coincidences to which it points are ones which only deliver billions of years after the initial conditions. So the coincidence only shows up in the course of time. Mm. And therefore, one can argue that it has this peculiar merit that it points towards advanced design. You know, the, the, the constants of the universe, I, I'm interested in Robin's view on this, but I, I take it that those initial constants, many of them, the fact that they are special fine-tuned values doesn't, doesn't show up in the initial Big Bang. It only shows up over the course of time as you get a complex universe developing. And in that case, if there really is a coincidence to explain there, it looks like um, advanced design has a, a, a fairly strong case mm. for being a plausible explanation. So, you know, that's, a, that's quite a kind of refined yeah. logical point, but it's, it's quite a strong... The, the other point, of course, about the fine-tuning argument is that it does point towards a, a, a global designer. Mm. You know, mm. it's the whole universe. Yes. Does, I don't think it points towards an omnipotent creator, but it, it, it at least points towards a cosmic scale creator. And that, again, is, you know, pretty impressive. Sure. So I think it's, yeah, it's, it's got quite a lot going for it. And it's clearly a, it's a, appealing to science rather than appealing to ignorance. And, um, you know, one problem with, for example, the cosmological argument where people say, oh, there must be a first cause of the physical universe, it can't be something physical, therefore it must be something mental. I mean, that's pretty hopeless, because it's just assuming that we have sufficient understanding of nature to know that those are the only two options, you know, physical matter of the kind we understand, or minds. Mm. And pretty obviously, um, you know, we're limited beings. There might, it might turn out that there are all sorts of things in nature of which we currently know nothing. So it looks like an appeal to ignorance. Whereas the fine-tuning argument is appealing to, you know, the latest results of yes, yes, um, indeed. The, the frontiers of science. Well, let, let's bring Robin in again at this point. Robin, um, in a sense, uh, Peter, doing your job for you there and giving, giving a sense of the, the merit of this particular argument for the existence mm. of God. Um, I, I mean, one of the things he points out is, is that you only see the, the coincidence, as it were, millennia later. And, and that's part of why, why it's a, an intriguing argument. Um, I, I mean, do, do you agree that of, of all the arguments, as it were, from natural theology, that, that this potentially has the most going for it? Uh, yes, I do, and I'm I'm sort of biased here, so <laughs> this is what I work on. Yeah, I mean, I, I've never found the I fe what I find the cosmological argument is I don't find it enough. If I were just starting from scratch to convince me of God, but I, I think um, those other arguments, um, many of them are enough to make theism a viable hypothesis, um, and. For me, then the fine-tuning puts it over the line. Sure. So it's, it's uh, you know, you, you, you're, it, it, under the, um, what the cosmological argument does is kind of points out, I think, intuitively how 
you know, you might be puzzled by God, for example, mm. you know, can you make coherent sense of this omnipotent, um, all-powerful, and then if you add um, omnipotent, all-knowing, all-good being, and then if you add necessary existence, and can you make sense of that? Um, but what the cosmological argument does there is, I think, it shows there's an equally strong puzzle on the other side. You know, how could this whole universe just sort of exist as a brute fact? Yes. Or, and if there's some other explanation, as Peter seems to indicate, that also it seems puzzling on what that could possibly be, and you just reduplicate the problem elsewhere. So for me, that kind of um, makes the um, puts the God hypothesis up to being um, one of the viable contenders. Okay. Well, look, um, let's uh, hear now from um, you, Peter, to, 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 to maybe put... Attack it. Uh, uh, yeah. <laughs> I mean, we've heard lots of it in favour of the, yep. <laughs> the finding yep. argument so far. <laughs> um, yes. Um, so, so let's. I mean, we don't have time to cover everything, but but no, maybe maybe let lay out two or three objections which we can cover in the rest of the time we've got. Yeah. Well. Yeah. Uh, actually, I'll put, I'll put a battery of them, but I think most of them probably we can pass over pretty quickly. Okay. Go for it. Um, so, I mean, <clears throat> the. The first point I, I think I'd make is that the the fine-tuning argument is based on very recent physics. Now, um, one of the examples Robin gave was dark energy density. Well, dark energy, uh, the first evidence for dark energy only came in 1998. You know, dark matter was corroborated only in 1980. Uh, current thinking is that around 4.5% of the universe consists of atomic matter. That's the stuff that we knew existed prior to 1980. So it's very important to realize that the physics that we're talking about is extremely recent. Now, that's, you know, that's not intended to debunk it. All I'm saying is we, we should be cautious here. Mm. Physics is moving quite quickly. Um, our best theory of the very large general re relativity is only 100 years old. Uh, quantum mechanics less those two conflict with each other. We don't yet have a way to reconcile them. Uh, physicists are working with string theory, or some are, to try to make sense of it all, speculating that the universe has 11 dimensions or whatever. That's still got a long way to go. So I think it's very important to inject a note of caution here, that um, we are right at the beginning of this game. And I I've often said that, that my view on the fine-tuning argument might be very different if in a thousand years' time uh, the physics still pointed towards lots of fine-tuning. Mm -hmm. you know, I think that would be a different issue. Sure. If we had a mature physics with the contradictions removed, um, lots and lots of experimental corroboration, lots of computer models making sense of it all, and it all fits, and we still have these coincidences. Mm. We're, we're certainly not in that position now. Um, one, one general point, Clearly, we can't rule out that there will be a deeper explanation for the apparent coincidences. You know, the, the physics in a 50 years' time or whatever may come up with some explanation, which, which, just like with Darwinism, leads us to say, oh, I see, yeah, all right, we don't need a designer to explain that. So, uh, again, I think the, the, these aren't debunking the argument. They're mm -hmm. just saying we, we, we have to be 
quite cautious. Can, before we get to some more, let's let's have a quick response from yeah. because I think those are good general issues to yeah, to, to, sure. to raise right at the outset. Rob, Robin, what do you make of those? Um, a physics is constantly moving. You know, the, you know, this could be yesterday's news. Um, there could be a deeper explanation in the future. Um, so, so yeah. Well, um, the couple things to look at. Um, First of all, just a point on the dark energy density. It's really the cosmological constant. That problem's been around probably since about 1980. But the two general, very general responses to that are, first, you have to look at the direction physics is moving in, and it actually seems to be moving in the direction of there being more fine-tuning, unexplained fine-tuning, not less. But let's suppose there is some theory, a grand unified theory that, um, explains the values of these constants um, and, in other words, entails their value, then it would seem highly coincidental that you just had just the right theory, the right grand unified theory was the case, right set of laws, to entail that the constants, the particular constant was in this teeny life-permitting range instead of anywhere else. So I think what ends up happening is the coincidence just gets kicked up to the level now of the laws themselves. Why have this set of laws that yield life-permitting values instead of some other? So I don't really think you can get out of the problem that way. Well, I'll let Peter Milliken respond on the other side of a quick break. We're talking about the fine-tuning of the universe on this edition of Unbelievable with me, Justin Briley, and we'll be back in a moment's time. Before we rejoin the rest of today's podcast, I've got a very special offer for you to help you have an even more meaningful spiritual experience this Easter. As you know, N.T. Wright is without doubt one of the greatest Christian thinkers and apologists of our time. And some of Tom's answers to questions about Jesus' death, resurrection and return are some of the most poignant and thought-provoking. That's why we've created a brand new downloadable devotional resource that's perfect for the Easter season featuring these questions and Tom's answers. This five-day devotional journey titled Jesus' Death, Resurrection and Return is only available to friends like you as our thanks for your gift today. And remember, your support is truly critical to help keep resources and podcasts like Ask Andy Write Anything and Unbelievable going strong because this ministry is completely funded by friends like you. So please give the very best gift you can today and make sure to download your copy of Jesus' Death, Resurrection and Return devotional at premierinsight.org forward slash unbelievable show. That's premierinsight.org forward slash unbelievable show. Thank you. You're listening to Unbelievable on Premier Christian Radio. Welcome back to the second part of today's programme. I'm Justin Briley, your host for Unbelievable. It's the show that brings Christians and non-Christians together for dialogue and debate every week. And we've got a cracking discussion going on today on the fine-tuning of the universe. And my guests are Peter Milliken and Robin Collins. If you want to get in touch, tell us what you think about today's discussion. Do email in unbelievable at premier.org.uk. And don't forget, you can leave comments underneath the latest edition of the show as well at premierchristianradio.com slash unbelievable. Loads of comments on last week's show, which was uh, whether uh, Christians should save sex for marriage. So uh, we'll be getting some of your comments on that 
towards the end of today's program. But today uh, we're asking, is the fine-tuning of the universe evidence for God? Robin Collins is one of the foremost um, professors of philosophy using the evidence from fine-tuning as an argument for God. And he's in conversation today with Peter Millikan, who's the Gilbert Ryle Professor of Philosophy at Oxford University. He teaches at Hartford College in Oxford. And um, uh, just to come back into this whole conversation, Peter, you wanted to come back to Robin on the whole issue of the probabilities involved with the fine-tuning of the universe. There is, a, there is a general difficulty of making sense of cosmic probability claims. Obviously, our experiments, our observations, only relate to this universe. So when we're speculating how the universe might have been or how other universes would be, we're really cutting ourselves off from what normally is our main source of probability judgments, namely observed frequencies and so on. Um, Now, I'm not one of those who says that this completely wrecks the fine-tuning argument, because I think think it's entirely possible um, to see that the evidence is pretty impressive, even if we accept that we can't give a precise probability measure. But I do think when we get onto the sort of thing that Robin's discussing now, this is a real problem. He's saying, isn't it incredibly coincidental that we've just got the right theory? Well, we can't judge that. We simply don't know. It's like somebody, you know, finding, suppose somebody said about Newton's laws, you know, it's proof of design that the laws are so simple, or proof of design that an orbit of one um, uh, of one body around another heavenly body just works out so, you know. I, j- I just don't think one can put much credence on those judgments until we've got understanding of where these things, what the true theory is, and we, we don't have that. Trying to say in advance that this is going to be something that we must judge as incredibly coincidental, I think is extremely tendentious. The other point, uh, an associated point I'd want to make is, and this is kind of relating to empirical human psychology, We know very well that we as human beings are very prone to seeing purpose in things, even when there is no purpose there. You know, we look in the clouds and we see a pattern. Uh, We look at things that are actually coincidental, like the organization of the stars in the sky, and we see patterns there and we assume they've been put there by the gods or whatever. Now, we have to train ourselves away from that, but... It's a constant tendency. So when we're, when we're making a judgment about what's coincidental and what's not, I think we have to realize that we're extremely fallible. And when we, when we get beyond the reach of things that give us an anchor, the, you know, the kind of statistical probabilities that we're used to, mm. I think one has to be very, very suspicious. Okay. Do, do, you want, do you want to come back on that briefly, uh, and then we'll see what else uh, Peter has to say, Robin? Okay. So there was a couple of objections raised here, I think, that one is whether you can make probability judgments without a statistical basis. And I think you can. I mean, I think we um, apply in a lot of cases something like a principle of indifference or we have intuitive probability measures and we don't have statistical basis for them. Like if you could think of, you know, if you produced your first um, 20-sided die, and you could, and it was um, um, all the sides were symmetrical. You could predict that the probability you'd think was one in 20 of it coming up, let's say 11. Um, 
in the case of science, we use these prior measures all the time. People are often not aware we're doing it, but we do it. For example, in the confirmation of atomic theory, if you look at um, what Wesley Salmon says in his book on explanation, he talks about what converted people from um, to atomic theory, which is very controversial, even up to the beginning of um, around 19, um, beginning of the 20th century, was that there was like 14 different methods of determining Avogadro's number, and they all yielded the same number, and people thought that that would be an enormous coincidence for that to be the case if atomic theory was false. So you're making a probability judgment there on a single universe case, there's only one universe to look at. And you can find all kinds of cases like this in science where we take a theory to be confirmed because we think that if the theory were false, whatever result we have would be extremely coincidental, even though we only have one universe to yeah. look at. C- can mm. I? Um, well, OK, uh, w- w- I'd love to, to move us on a little bit beyond okay. this, but but um, do you want to quickly respond? Yeah, just Peter a quick response. The... I mean, I, th- I think so. I think what Robin said there is perfectly effective against people who deny that there is any coincidence to be explained in the fine tuning argument. OK, so we're on the same side there. That is, I'm happy to accept um, that something like a principle of indifference has some purchase when you have a constant, say, which could take any value for all we can see between, you know, one and a hundred. We can't see any reason why it would take any particular value in that range. But if it weren't exactly 48, there wouldn't be life and low and, you know, within uh, a small margin of error. And lo and behold, it is 48. I'm I'm with him on that, that that, that something like a principle of indifference looks effective. Mm. Where I was querying it was the question about where he wanted to say it's highly coincidental if there is a higher level theory that explains the coincidence what a coincidence it is that we have the right high level theory and that's completely different you can't apply the principle of indifference there you don't know how many theories there are in the offing you don't know what the structure of the theories Mm, would be mm, that's mm. a completely different matter okay Uh, i mean quick response robin and then we'll we'll see what else Uh, uh, i i think that i think that um it projects the probability on the lower level projects a probability on the level of theories. For example, let's suppose somebody said, you know, you you toss the die or the coin a hundred times and it comes up heads. And they say, oh, they're, you know, they're they're into super determinism, that there's some ultimate grand unified theory that not only determines, you know, the regularities in nature, but determines the initial conditions. And they explain that by saying, oh, there's this grand theory that entails this result, that's my explanation, Um, I would say, well, it's why that ground theory that entails that the initial conditions were such to yield that sequence versus all the other possible ground theories that would yield a different sequence. So I'd say that it just projects the probability up to the higher level let's leave that one alone for the moment because i I think there are uh, what what i'd like to get to apart from those general issues you have i I guess with with it is is to some of the specific arguments that are often leveled against i mean for for instance um peter uh, the multiverse we we have to go to the multiverse don't we um um so so i mean very briefly i could 
have a, an attempt at spelling this one out, but um, what if, uh, that rather than this being yeah. the only universe, there are many universes yeah. all with different uh, sets of values and fundamental forces and exactly. constants and so on, um, w- with enough universes, you would eventually get one that produced a life-permitting uh, universe scenario. Um, so, and, it, and importantly, if there were a large ensemble of such universes, then it would not be a surprise that we as observers find ourselves in a life-permitting universe. Indeed, yep. yes. Um, and, and so do you, you, you think this is a pretty important objection to the, to the argument, Peter? Yeah, I, I mean, I put this under the heading of there may be some future theory that explains it. Sure. Okay, okay. just in the, w- in the way that Darwin came up with a theory that explained biological adaptation. Um, in a similar way, it could turn out that there was some, if you like, evolution-like uh, explanation of the fine-tuning. That is, it's a selection effect. You know, you've got either a world ensemble, mm-hmm. an evolving sequence of worlds, loads of bubble universes, they've all got their own Big Bang, different conditions, and so on. And if you, if you do have zillions of universes, all with different values of the constants, then I take it there is no coincidence yes. to be explained. You, you simply take out the, the, the aspect of chance. It, it, it had to happen, in a sense. If, or it if, was if overwhelming, were, or it was... Yeah. Quite likely to happen, yeah, yes, quite likely exactly. I mean, it would depend on the details of the theory. And, um, yeah, I mean, that's a standard response. I mean, I do think it's a little bit of a promissory note. You know, it's <laughs> like saying, well, there may be a theory like this. And I'm not convinced at the moment that physics... Is, is anywhere close to pointing to, towards this? Uh, this. Let, let's see yeah, what. There Ro- are many physicists who do think that. Yeah. Let, let's see what Robin's overall response is. I mean, obviously, you, you've heard this a hundred times, Robin. Um, what if there is a, a multiverse, and uh, we happen to be in the universe that uh, where the, the numbers were just right for our existence? What, what is it? A promissory note? Um, does it undercut the argument at all? I think it's a promissory. I agree, it's a promissory note. Now, you know, you could find sometime in the future that such a theory, um, you know, is developed. I mean, people have hoped that it would be some combination of inflationary cosmology and superstring theory. So I think, I think that's the strongest objection to the fine-tuning argument is this alternative hypothesis of the multiverse. Mm-hmm. Um, now, a uh, kind of sub- couple of standard objections to the multiverse are this hypothesis. If you think it's a result of some sort of physical process that gives rise to the multiverse, then at least to some extent it seems to kick the fine-tuning back up a level because it seems like the multiverse generator needs to be set just right in order to produce life-permitting universes. It has to have the right mechanisms and probably the um if it has any constants fine the fine-tuned constants but we can't say that for sure because sure. no one's come up with a complete um multiverse um generator scenario now i looked mm. at the one with inflationary cosmology in some detail and superstring theory and you do have to have just the right set of mechanisms and to a lot um, the right initial conditions for this thing to work so there is a good case to be made it doesn't really solve at least it um, just pushes the, the problem back one versus, level. but it might reduce it i would agree okay. it, re, it could reduce it it also runs into a, <clears throat> another standard problem and that is the boltzmann brain problem when you try to explain the um, special initial conditions of the universe it's vastly more likely for there to be a small regional order enough to get um 
enough organized complexity so that observers could arise. Um, it's vastly more probable to get that in a small region than a large region, let's say, throughout the universe. So we should expect to find ourselves either as isolated observers, because that's even more likely a, mm. a single isolated brain, or if you require that observers be such that they can use telescopes and things like that in an isolated solar system or galaxy. So it doesn't really explain um, the uniformly low entropy of the universe throughout. Now, I must admit, cosmologists have been working on, um, for about 20 years or so, trying to give a more natural explanation of that. Now, if they could achieve that, it would now push the fine-tuning back to, you know, why just those set of laws that yield this right. um, low-entropy universe. So I want to say one other thing about that. Mm, so I do mm. recognize the 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 uh, that objection. I think it has some weaknesses. Um, where my current area of research has gone is another kind of fine-tuning that actually avoids that objection. And that's what I've got a recent grant from the Templeton Foundation for to um, complete work on this project is, um, at least I'll claim, and some of this has been checked over by other uh, physicists and cosmologists, is that um, the constants also seem to be fine-tuned to um, optimize our ability to discover the universe in the sense of um, our, our tools for discovering the universe, like um, the um, baryon to photon ratio is um, our, our, is just right to maximize the intensity of the cosmic microwave background radiation, um, which is then essential for as a tool to discover the cosmos. So if this if this sort of fine tuning all works out, mm. it's not subject to a multiverse objection um, because. Um, there's no observer selection effect coming into play. And a multiverse objection requires an appeal to an observer selection effect. It's not just that the multiverse implies that there would exist some um, life-permitting or observer-permitting universe, but it also says that not only should there be one, but the observers in that universe shouldn't be surprised that their universe is fine-tuned for observers because they wouldn't have existed otherwise. Mm. But for discovery, there might be a discovery optimal, uh, optimal universe in the multi-universe scenario, but any randomly selected observer should be very surprised if they find themselves in such a universe. So it doesn't it is unable to account for that kind of fine-tuning. Okay. So that's my current work. That, that, it's, um, all, it's all quite brain-melting, if I'm quite honest with you, Robin. Um, and it's all, it's all melting my brain somewhat. But okay. um, the, the, let's tackle these one at a time and, and see what Peter might have to say in response to any of them. I mean, yeah. um, we've, we talked about Boltzmann brains. Um, we've talked yeah. about the, the, the fine-tuning on top of the fine-tuning almost that, yeah. that Robin mentioned there. Um, any, any kind of responses to yeah, some of sure. these issues? Um, with regard to kicking fine-tuning up a level, mm. that is, if there's a physical process that generates these universes, uh, what a coincidence that it should be just the right kind of physical process mm. to generate a life-producing universe. I'm unimpressed with that for the same reason as I said about the theories. I don't think there you can apply anything like a principle of indifference. If we, if we don't know what the process is, then it's very hard to say in advance that it needs to be a fine-tuned process. And at a point when our physics is not even self-consistent, 
um, you know, and string theory hasn't been worked out, the idea of our being able to say with any confidence what will seem a coincidence in a finished theory, I think, is fanciful. Um, on the Boltzmann brain, yeah, I'm not impressed by that, but I, I, it's probably best not to discuss that because that's a, a kind of technical uh, one. On the on the last point that Robin made, I, I'm suspicious about this. I mean, the, the argument goes, look, we have found out about the world by this, that, and the other way, e.g. cosmic background radiation and so forth. Mm. Um, gosh, isn't that amazing? The world had to be fine-tuned to let us do that. Now... <sighs> You often get the saying, isn't it remarkable, isn't it amazing that we have organs that enable us to find out so much about the world? You know, that's a fantastic and amazing thing. Mm. And I think there's, a, there's an element of kind of wanting to have it both ways. It, it, given our, uh, our limits, it is amazing. I mean, I find it you know, at least remarkable how much progress we've managed to make in science. It is sort of mm. surprising that mm. creatures evolved on this little Earth um, have managed, apparently, to discover loads of things way beyond it that you wouldn't... How the universe... Expected. Well, the, the point at which the universe came to existence, it's, it is pretty remarkable. Yes. Yeah. 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 And, you know, and, and things at the atomic level and yeah. so forth. And, yeah, we, we've got remarkable brains. It, it's quite amazing. Um, but when we then look back and treat the particular route by which we've come to that knowledge, um, inevitably that's going to be full of all sorts of little accidents. You know, something happened to give us a clue to something. We saw an anomaly in this or that. That was the clue that led us to discover something. And it could have been something quite different, you know, had history been different. So I think there's a real problem with looking back and saying, wow, how that must have been fine-tuned. You know, it's like if I, if I look back over my life and I think, you know, various chances, you know, when I happened to meet my wife and so forth, you know, what a lucky event. Um, it could so easily have been different. It must have been designed by God. Well, no, whatever, whatever history your life takes and whatever history human knowledge takes, there will be all sorts of rather surprising turns on the road. And again, I'm very, very suspicious about trying to make a probability judgment with regard to that. We're, we're just, ex we know psychologically we're extremely unreliable when it comes to those kinds of judgments. If you, if you look at the psychological literature in cases where we can check, we find that people standardly go wrong with this sort of thing. I've no reason for thinking that physicists won't go wrong with it when they try to imagine themselves into, you know, alien possibilities or alternative scientific histories. Well, um, let, let's come back to you, Robin. Um, as I understand it, uh, the, this new area that you're working on um, is that not only is there this uh, fine-tuning that we've observed in the universe, but our ability to observe the fine-tuning is a result of um, various aspects which are um, themselves appear to be um, you know made for our benefit almost to be able to, to discover the the fine-tuning so, so as, aspects of the nature of the radiation and so on that, that, that makes it accessible to us as, right. as humans and so on and, it, and it, it's can I just okay? Go ahead. Well, I was just going to sort of, I guess, just put put then um, the, this this objection from Peter to you, which is, um, well, it's very difficult to assign a probability to that because you know, just as all the ways in which all sorts of things happen, there there, there are lots of accidental features to them. Um, can can you really confidently say that this was definitely seems to be set up for our advantage, for our ability to be able to have observed this fine tuning? 
Okay, let me respond to what Peter said. It's really it's the it's the same kind of argument you have in the case of the fine tuning for parameters, except it doesn't um, suffer from the observer selection effect. Um, in terms of the fine tuning, I look of the let's say the cosmic microwave background radiation. I look at a range of possible values for the baryon to photon ratio, which is just a, um, it's a uh, pretty much of a constant in um, the universe since its very beginning, which is the number of um, neutrons plus protons to the number of photons. Um, and I look over that range and look at how intense the cosmic microwave background radiation would be for different values. and it's maximally intense over a range of a billion fold where we are at right now. And so it's not only, it's not merely that, oh, we've been able to use this as a tool to discover the universe, which you might then suspect, well, there's always a observer, a discoverability selection effect. You know, we wouldn't even known about it unless mm. we could that tool. It's more than that, it's that it's optimal. So if it were, let's say, the barrier to photon ratio were 100 times smaller, we would have known that it wasn't optimal. So, and I, initially I'd made a miscalculation on this. Now this particular calculation has been checked over by four other people, um, physicists and cosmologists. I initially made a calculation and thought the thesis was refuted. It wasn't optimal. And it was only when I discovered a mistake in my initial calculation recalculated it turned out to be, come out to be optimal. That is falsifiable, cannot be explained by uh, selection effects. So if that all turns out, you would have a case of fine-tuning, I don't think, is subject to a multiverse. That, that, that's that's the, very, a very interesting new twist, I think. Um, can I go on, Justin, to put some other particular questions? Well, we, we, I tell you what, we, 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 we've got just five minutes, really, to, to, to have... What, let's have one more objection and, and have a little bit of a, a, a to and fro, and then we'll have to start to wrap things up, gentlemen. OK. okay so can, yes. you, can you choose your best, your best next one if you, to draw uh, well, out of your back well, can, pocket? Can I, can, I, can I persuade you to allow me to? Go on, then, if you're very, if you're very brief in el- right, elucidating very briefly. Them. OK. God's traditional attributes, mm. omnipotence, omniscience, moral perfection... I'm not going to stress the moral perfection, though I'm sure it's pretty clear that a morally evil God would want a well-tuned universe too. But let's not go on to that now. There's lots of discussion about that. Mm. For omnipotence, omniscience, there's an issue. And here's why. When you see fine-tuning, it isn't evidence, standardly, of something being all-powerful. It's evidence of something having to work within narrow constraints and finding the best way to achieve its ends within those constraints. If you have a god who can create intelligent life, as it were, just by fiat, just by wishing for it, Mm. he doesn't need to go through 14 billion years to do it and have such a ginormous universe for such a very small piece that's inhabitable and such a very small period of its existence. Mm. So that's one issue. So so the fine-tuning argument, it seems to me, points towards a finite rather than an infinite god. The other question I'd really like to ask is this. Fine-tuning goes along with the idea that the universe is specially adapted for life, capable of moral and religious thought. It follows from that that we can expect there to be other life forms in other galaxies, or loads of them. 
morally and religiously sensitive. Mm. What does that do to traditional Christian theology? I think the fine-tuning argument, if taken seriously, points against the exclusive truth of any religion. I think you have to accept that there will be lots and lots, billions of different religions around the world. There may be some common truth to all of them, Mm. but it's very unlikely that you're going to end up with Jesus as the unique incarnation of the second It's a really interesting point, and it it takes us to the very specifics of the the Christian conception of God here, Robin. Um, I mean, you are a Christian, Robin, and, and so I guess you're interested in this question. Coming to the first one then, and again, I'll ask you to be brief in your responses. Um, does it does it simply point to a finite rather than an infinite God, um, given that he's used a very specific process uh, involving billions of years in narrow parameters to produce a very small bit of life on a planet? Um, is that how we would expect an all-powerful God to act, I suppose, is the question. Well, I think that the issue of complexity, you would need, if you're embodied conscious agents, I think that um, that can interact with each other. I think that's going to require a fair amount of complexity. And then I think complex, uh, complexity that works right is going to require fine-tuning. And even if it did, there's additional purpose, maybe, that we would find out about the fine-tuning. So that's one point to make. But a second point to make is I think that you do run the danger on a finite deity. Um, I think of pushing the fine-tuning up one level. If something's finite, it has boundaries. And then you run the problem of needing the boundaries themselves to be fine-tuned, so you don't really solve the fine-tuning problem. Um, You're in danger of pushing it up one level, where if you have an unlimited being, you don't have any boundaries, so there's nothing to fine-tune. So I think if you're going to demand that the fine-tuning be thoroughly explained, you need an unlimited being. Now, even if you didn't buy that argument, even and I, I think that's a good argument, but even if you didn't buy it, <clears throat> another way of running the whole fine-tuning argument, and I said there's multiple ways of running it, is saying, well, if you start with theism and atheism as your two alternatives, then it's made atheism um, at least a kind of naturalistic version of atheism. There's not you know, other um, supernatural agents, far less plausible. So in that sense, it's given us a, um, a good evidence for theism over um, natural the naturalistic version of atheists. So that's kind of how I yeah, respond yeah. to that Ooh. first objection. As for the second objection mm. about Christian theology, I've actually written an article on this issue. Um, <clears throat> I actually do think God is like in the C.S. Lewis, the Narnia tales. I think there's other realms. I think that's likely under theism. There's many, many other universes, um, maybe not produced by a universe generator, but many other realms with possible law structures and likely other life on other um, galaxies. I have no problem with that. I think the doctor of the incarnation can easily accommodate that. There's various versions of it. Um, in fact, the one, the um, orthodox one coming from the Council of Chalcedon, um, um, as standardly understood, it's God taking up human nature. So if there were, let's say, in the, you know, I've loved watching Star Trek, so if there were Klingons somewhere in another galaxy, 
God could have taken on Klingon nature and they would have had their own Klingon Jesus. Right. And so I don't see any problem with multiple <laughs> incarnations. That's, it's an interesting point of view and um, all kinds of avenues that this takes us down. We're going to take a quick break and we'll be back as we conclude our discussion here on Unbelievable on the fine tuning of the universe. Is it evidence for God? Welcome back to the final part of this week's Unbelievable. I'm Justin Briley, your host for the show that aims to get you thinking every Saturday afternoon. We also have a large podcast audience around the world. In fact, the show regularly features in the top 10 of the iTunes Religion and Spirituality download chart. Uh, So if you're listening on iTunes, uh, you're very welcome along as well. Or indeed, you can find the podcast feed, the RSS feed from the website of Unbelievable. PremierChristianRadio.com slash unbelievable and unbelievable part of faith explored every saturday afternoon here on premier christian radio well we are heading towards easter holy week is almost upon us and next week as is often traditional on unbelievable we're going to be doing a debate on the resurrection of christ this time from a jewish and christian perspective so we'll be asking a question along the lines of did the jewish messiah rise from the dead but we'll be looking at the so-called minimal facts again which many christian historians claim to give evidence for the historicity of the resurrection so jonathan mcclatchy will be our christian guest our apologist next week on the show and we'll be hearing from a a jewish scholar who's going to be arguing against the resurrection so look out for that one at the same time next week if you can continue to listen this saturday afternoon between four and five today uh, two special guests for you on the profile i'll be speaking to espionage thriller writer frederick forsyth yes the author of the day of the jackal amongst many other well-known novels so he'll be telling us about his view on faith and uh, his uh, life writing those crime thrillers and espionage thrillers um, and then uh, Maria in the second half of the program chats to Christy Wimber um, she uh, heads up uh, well she's one of the leaders of the Vineyard Church in the USA going to be talking about uh, her ministry her faith and uh, miraculous signs and wonders as well so listen out for that between four and five two interesting guests on the profile this Saturday afternoon right now it's time to get back into our discussion today You're listening to Unbelievable on Premier Christian Radio. Well, as we conclude today's programme, we've been talking about the fine-tuning of the universe. Um, And we've certainly been making you think today. Robin Collins has been on the line, and uh, he's a philosopher out at uh, Messiah College in Grantham, Pennsylvania, well-known for being a leading advocate of the argument from fine-tuning as evidence for God. He's he's detailed some of the extra twists that he's been adding recently in his research, which sounds very exciting as to uh, whether we ourselves are, as it were, fine-tuned or, or that the, the ability our ability to observe the fine-tuning is is in some sense itself fine-tuned um and uh, we've also heard from peter millican uh, who's been on the show before gilbert ryle fellow and professor of philosophy at hartford college at the university of oxford and he's um, been a very interesting uh, combatant uh, though a very pleasant one at that um with uh, robin on this question of whether there are various objections to the fine-tuning of the universe we come back then peter to uh, this fundamental, what, what I think captures most people's imagination, this extraordinarily fine-tuned universe we live in, these co- cosmological constants and uh, forces and so on, which seem to be exquisitely finely balanced in order to allow conscious life to emerge at some point down the line. And the, the question I suppose I have for you is, in the absence of some of these other tentative hypotheses you've mentioned, a grand unified theory, um, a multiverse producer, um, some some other way that we haven't yet discovered uh, that, that these fine-tuned uh, values could come into existence, 
is God a valid hypothesis, you know, in the absence of other hypotheses? Um, can can we go down the design route and, and can the design route, you know, lead us to God? Yeah, uh, th- this is a very interesting question. Uh, so um, I will tell you, last year, in, in January last year, I published a paper with a colleague who's a psychologist of religion and very sympathetic towards spiritual perspectives on things, Brandon Thornhill Miller, uh, called The Common Core Diversity Dilemma, Revisions of Humean Thought, New Empirical Research, and the Limits of Rational Religious Belief. Sounds like and, bedtime reading. <laughs> <yes>. <laughs> well, there, actually, the fine-tuning argument played uh, quite an important role, because one of the things we were discussing was how uh, there is quite a lot of evidence that religious belief can have positive psychological effects in various ways, both social and personal. And so one of the questions we were addressing was, what do you do if you want to get these good effects, but at the same time you want to be a rational believer? And our conclusion, very briefly, was that what we call second-order religion, that is accepting that religions in general point to some spiritual truth, but without being dogmatic about any of them, Mm. might be quite an attractive position. I mean, we disagreed, in fact. I mean, it was a dialogue between... One, uh, Brandon, rather more sympathetic to religion than I am, but we were trying to be, you know, very open-minded in our dialogue. Mm. And um, anyway, the thought was that let's suppose you're in this position that religion matters an awful lot to you. You want to have an intellectually respectable religion, and you're prepared to forego the dogmatisms of specific uh, beliefs. Actually, the fine-tuning argument gives a very attractive way of seeing your way to a sort of second-order theism where you say, well, I do, you know, there is at least some evidence that the universe has been favorably designed for beings who are naturally inclined to evolve in a spiritually aware way. Mm. But it does, I, I take the view that that would naturally lead to pluralism with regard to religion. Mm. Um, but I wouldn't see that as a, a big negative, whereas some others might. Mm. And, and and so, I mean... It, are you saying then that you are sympathetic to the idea that if you were trying to explain um, why why we have a natural spiritual dimension, let's say, to us, that um, and you wanted to hold that in a kind of scientifically rational way, you it would be legitimate to to see the fine tuning argument as it stands as as a, a reasonable reasonably good piece of evidence to hold in that respect. Yeah, th- this is a very tricky question because I think it comes down to how important it is to be. For, to us to be rational mm. um, and to some people that matters more than others now suppose you're in a situation where austere rationality is actually going to lead to a situation where you're going to be profoundly depressed actually in that case it's better not to be rational mm. <laughs> you know you might think actually you know this belief matters so much to me that i'm going to go for a, a way of defending it of, of preserving it uh, that doesn't give up rise to any horrors. It's not going to turn me into a dogmatic monster mm. who believes, you know, other people should be eliminated for believing different things and so on. It's going to leave me relatively comfortable in my belief. Um, but it may not be what the austere philosopher who really is chasing truth at all costs would go for. Sure. And and I, I think one can respect that. And okay. as I say, I'm in the position of having been involved in a dialogue over this with a with a colleague who was more sympathetic to spiritual perspectives and we, what we were trying to do was see 
what would be a you know what reasonable compromises were available there. Mm. So I personally don't favour that view, but I do respect it. Um, let's take take a, a final sounding from you as well, Robin. What, why do you think design and its um, as evidence towards God is is a perfectly reasonable one to have on the table in in the absence of other types of possible scenarios that we we may or may not discover down the line? Um, because I think there's a lot of other reasons um, people could. Um, it, it, theism doesn't just stand alone. It's not like you have the fine-tuning evidence and, you know, you're looking around for hypotheses and then you land upon theism as um, the only possible explanation. I actually don't frame it that way. I frame it as, um, in my more, you know, rigorous work on the topic, I frame it as providing evidence for theism. Mm. And I think there's many other motivations for why people believe in God. And so that's why I claim it just by lowering the plausibility of the atheist, particularly atheist naturalistic alternative. In that sense, it provides evidence for theism Mm -hmm. over that alternative. Now, there might be other possibilities that also can explain the fine-tuning apart from theism. For example, John Leslie's axiarchic hypothesis that just as a fundamental principle of reality, that what is is what ought to be. In other words, um, reality is structured to realize the good in the platonic sense of the good. Um, I think that could also potentially account for the fine-tuning. At least that hypothesis would render it unsurprising if you could work it all out. So it's more that it provides evidence if you were um, for theism when combined with everything else. Yes. You're going to have it, other it, motivations it, for theism, including experience and including the argument I think that Peter gave, which I call the um, I have a, a name for that argument. I think there's, it's a pragmatic argument for belief in God because it helps you live for at least some people. It helps them live their life. So I think it's, there's a much larger um there's a much larger picture you yes. have to keep in mind. And I, I you know, wouldn't say this gives you, does, certainly doesn't give you Christian belief. It gives you a very general belief in um, general support for theistic belief. Yeah. And uh, as a final um, statement on that, I think the combination of reason with religion is actually a very good thing for religion itself. I think it keeps... Um, it keeps religion from being harmfully dogmatic, and I think the way Peter is um, objecting to is I think that kind of harmful dogmatism comes when people, uh, one source of it is when people are pushed into saying either you have faith or you follow the mind, and then once they make the decision, I'm just going to have faith and I'm going to have to exclude my intellect in order to have faith, then that opens the door to all kinds of um, stupid dogmatic beliefs that people can have that cause all kinds of harm. Yeah, we're going to have to leave, leave it there. I think Peter was agreeing with you there. Um, but um, the uh, I guess to, just to sum up then, Robin, you'd say it's it. For you, it's it's part of, I suppose, a cumulative case for theism, or, or it corroborates the general thesis, the, the idea it of theism. It confirms theism. It con- yeah. It's a confirming evidence, but it, 
I wouldn't think of it as actually getting you all the way to theism itself. And and certainly not Christian theism at that. But it's uh, certainly not Christian it, theism. It, it, but it's obviously, um, yes, it's part of the, the biggest picture, I suppose. Have much bigger decisions on how you're going to live your life, all that sort of thing. <laughs> it's been but really, I think it, bringing reason in is an extremely important thing to do. Yeah. Um, not just trying to convert people to, to become theists, but also for people that are religious themselves to bring it in is is very helpful to to um yeah it it helps religion become um less harmfully dogmatic well thank you very much both for being with me very interesting discussion we've we've covered quite a lot of ground and um i hope that if you're listening at home you were able to keep up with a lot of that um i know that uh, we got it got quite uh philosophically dense at times and scientifically as well but uh, perhaps uh, you've got a thought on it uh, you'd like to send in well I'm going to give you the ways to get in touch as ever in a moment's time but for the moment um, thank you very much both Robin and Peter for being with me on the program today thank you Peter thank you thank you Robin nice to meet you and uh, nice enjoyed it a lot you. Justin Unbelievable with Justin Brierley. Well, if you'd like to get in touch, uh, do email unbelievable at premier.org.uk. And uh, we've had loads of comments last week as well underneath um, the, the program that goes up on, on the website. Uh, that was the discussion on whether Christians should save sex for marriage. Um, so uh, I, I don't have time to read uh, all of those comments, unfortunately, under the, the website. But if you want to read them yourself, premierchristianradio.com slash unbelievable. And just click back to last week's show to see the many comments that uh, came in about that. But I've had so many in by email that I'm going to concentrate on those for the moment. Just a reminder, though, before we go to those comments, that uh, if you're interested unbelievable the conference it's coming you you'll hear about it every every single week basically until you click on the link and book in um that's premierchristianradio.com slash unbelievable 2016 i've got some really exciting guests we're continuing to add to the the guest roster actually and um, loads of great seminars uh, if you want to see the full lineup uh, find out more about the conference venue um special group discounts that kind of thing we've got a um a, a discount where you get uh, 10 tickets for the price of nine get one free basically uh, there's also an early bird option if you book before the 15th of april so if you're putting it off don't put it off too long you'll miss the early bird rate uh, there's a student discount rate as well uh, all of that stuff available uh, i'd love you to join me for this year's conference uh, at the uh, the brewery in london on saturday the 2nd of july a really inspiring encouraging thought-provoking day it's always been in the past so um premierchristianradio.com slash unbelievable 2016 if you'd like to find out more about that um now uh, lots of you writing in on last week's show diana e anderson the author of damaged goods was talking about the dangers of the purity movement in the usa that she grew up in and making the case that it's okay for christians to have sex before marriage um that's not necessarily prescribed either by scripture it's not necessarily wrong uh, and then on the other side of that conversation we had sarah long who uh, worked uh, very recently for the romance academy and uh, she was making the case for saving sex for marriage and uh, why she does encourage young people to go down that route the, the conversation in many ways did center around young people and the pressures on them uh, in terms of sexuality and so on lots and lots of response i've only time to read really a small amount of it here but someone who wanted to remain anonymous on facebook said i had a lot of difficulty listening to the program there were many points that resonated with me but overall i fundamentally disagreed with diana's views on one hand i could emphasize with some of her position i grew up in a conservative evangelical church where my father was a pastor 
I took a purity pledge at fifteen. I met the girl who'd become my wife at sixteen. We attended a conservative Christian college. We dated for four years before marriage and went through quite a bit of premarital counselling. During all that, I also had friends that got married and divorced. But my wife and I have been married for thirteen years and have two wonderful children. During our wedding ceremony, we exchanged our true love weights rings. She's the only woman I've been with, and I'm the only man she's been with. I think that's something special. I agreed with Sarah about sex being a physical representation of covenant. As a Christian and a psychologist, I also believe that it's a physical expression of deep intimacy that's representative of the emotional and psychological intimacy that two people share. The bond of marriage is the best place for that, regardless of a person's spiritual beliefs, because marriage is a promise of sharing that level of intimacy with only one person. There is something sacred within that. One flesh, and during the program, I felt Diana was throwing the baby out with the bathwater. While I agree that reform is needed in the way churches approach education about sex and relationships, it doesn't mean that we should reinterpret and ignore scripture about the sacredness of covenant and sexuality. That's inviting in all sorts of potential harm and at-risk behaviour that may lead to emotional baggage being brought into future relationships. That's just my two cents. And you also go on to say that、um, you've been with so many people in the therapy room that have been in bad relationships where sex was just a physical act and nothing more. There's often so much baggage there that has to be wor- worked through.、Um, thank you very much for your thoughts on that.、Um, Michael in Pennsylvania writes: I'm not a Christian, but I found this week's episode very interesting. It was nice to hear some women on the show for a change. I felt that the discussion overall was civil and intelligent, and I was glad to not hear a lot of the guests arguing over biblical passages. It seemed. For the most part, your guests tended to agree more than they disagreed. I do have one thing to weigh in on, however. At one point, Diana brought up a story about a young couple who couldn't afford to get married.、Uh, the other guest, Sarah, then suggested that the problem wasn't necessarily the cost of marriage, but the cost of the wedding that needed to be addressed. As a young person who is in a committed long-term relationship, I can say there are more things to consider financially about getting married than just the cost of a wedding. Many young people are having difficulty living independently because of the current economic climate, and that can pose even more. Of a barrier to marriage than the cost of a wedding. How is a couple supposed to live together and start a family if they can't even support themselves? I suspect that this extended adolescence is putting a strain on Christian purity movements. Though, of course, I don't have any data to support my hypothesis. Anyway, thanks for a great show. I look forward to hearing your podcast every week. Thank you,、uh, Michael, and、um, I always appreciate people who are so encouraging in their feedback. Uh, this one in、uh, no name given on this email, but says I'm a fan though infrequent listener to Unbelievable. I really liked this discussion. I grew up in a similar environment to Diana, but not quite as strict. However. I have chosen abstinence for a number of reasons. Firstly, I want the first time to be with someone who actually cares about me. Secondly, there are things I want to do with my life. Thirdly, I believe life begins at conception, so I want to wait until I meet someone I'm willing to have as the mother of my child. And fourth, I'm leaning towards Long's opinion, Sarah's opinion, on what is acceptable for Christians. I will comment, however, on the push to marry young. In my evangelical upbringing in the USA, marriage was more discouraged than encouraged. And there's a fear among my peers of being old maids or old bachelors. We did grow up with the anti-dating messages that dating is practice for divorce,、uh, and I recommend that as a discussion point for a future episode. And uh, this one uh, from Ian says,、uh, "I delayed listening to this week's unbelievable, suspecting the program might make my blood boil, so I didn't want to be in a bad mood before preaching on Sunday. I managed to listen to it calmly on Sunday evening."、Uh, Diana Anderson's argument seemed to me based on two premises. 
Firstly, some U.S. churches teach about sex and marriage in a poor way, and secondly, not having sex before marriage does not guarantee that you won't get divorced. Her conclusion, therefore, was that sex before marriage is okay in some circumstances, and the logic in that argument is non-existent. I was surprised by the claim made by both that the Bible isn't that clear on sex before marriage being wrong.、Uh, Deuteronomy twenty-two thirteen to twenty-one seems pretty clear to me, as does the general tenor of the teaching throughout the Bible. As Sarah Long did acknowledge.、Uh, one final point: there was a lot of talk about people deciding for themselves what is right for them.、Uh, there are matters, and this is one of them, where God decides what is right for us. Of course, we need to use wisdom and grace in how we teach this, but we do need to recognise that our Creator actually has a far better idea of what is best for us than we do. And、uh, this one from Peter Harris says it was good good to hear a program about applied ethics in relation to sexuality last Saturday. One element I thought was missing from the debate was the very good option of voluntary celibacy and the state of asexuality. A celibate lifestyle is advocated by Paul and Christ as a means of focusing on the kingdom's work. If your guests had spent more time on the exegesis of the scriptures, they might have brought this up. In a society flooded with sexual imagery, it's important to realise that celibacy is possible and for some the best way. The assumption that most will be sexually expressive is a good one, but there are those who are asexual too, and who are therefore involuntarily celibate, for that is who they are. There are those people who find sexual intercourse revolting, and who do so not because of sexual trauma or puritanical teaching, because they just so happen to be that way. They don't object to others having sexual pleasure, but it's not for them. In a church culture that makes often the assumption that sex within marriage is the norm, it's important to give space and respect to those who will engage in neither marriage nor sex, just as Christ and Paul. Unfortunately, we don't did not hear that message during the broadcast. Though I'm sure both speakers would agree with it.、Uh, with regards to Christ as a feminist, I'd argue he was a masculinist too. The Good Samaritan parable teaches that men who are the victims of violence, and most victims of violence are men, deserve tender care and not to be treated with indifference or, as the state does during war, as expendable.、Uh, Tim F. It says, "Greetings from Canada. I just finished listening to the recent dialogue about saving sex for marriage, and I must say that I was, to coin the colloquial Briton, chuffed at both guests. They were both presenting their views as Christians. Yet after an hour of dialogue on the subject, there was only a single passing reference to scripture. Both women, although well spoken and researched, refused to make dogmatic statements about what God had said regarding the subject, and routinely said." I think that, and I feel that this, dis dis this degraded the discussion down to an opinion fest, where God and His Word wound up taking a side seat. The Bible condemns sexual immorality in many places, and you quote a number of them from the New Testament. And what could the term possibly mean besides sex outside the bond of marriage? But this was never discussed. At the absolute least, I would expect them to discuss what Hebrews means when it says, "Let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous." I couldn't help but feel as though the main thrust of Diana's argument came from an anthropocentric view. More was reason because of man than because of God. Sarah, on the other hand, although I agree with her, gave no biblical backing and realistically made no stronger case than Diana. My wife and I preserved our virginity until we were. Married, and although it doesn't physically strengthen our marriage, there is a bond between us that is completely unique in its intimacy. It's been shared by no one else, and is absolutely ours. From that alone, 
I understand a great deal more about the bond between God and the Christian and why so often marriage and union is used as a metaphor for the Christian life. Sex should be saved for marriage, not because of any of the reasons brought up in the show, but rather because it's the way God intended it from the beginning. It's a shame how many people completely throw away the clear teachings of the Bible because of their own pride and lust. Sorry to rant, but I do get a little passionate about these things. I really appreciate your show and will continue to listen as I have been. Thank you very much for getting in touch, Tim. Um, No time for any more, unfortunately, but just a little smattering of some of the emails that came in in response to last week's programme, which, of course, you can go and listen to yourself if you didn't get the chance to hear it. That's at premierchristianradio.com slash unbelievable. Check out links to the podcast as well and, of course, this year's Unbelievable Conference. It's all there for your browsing pleasure. In the meantime, thank you for joining me for this week's edition of the programme. Hope you got something out of it. Hope you're going to get in touch as well about today's discussion. And join me as well, of course, for next week's show. Let me tell you about that right now. You're unbelievable. It's going to be Easter, of course, uh, Easter weekend next weekend. And so we're going to be doing, as we often do, a discussion on the resurrection, asking, did the Jewish Messiah rise from the dead? And we'll be hearing from a Jewish scholar who doesn't believe that is the case. Jonathan McClatchy is our Christian guest. They're going to be debating what's sometimes called the minimal facts for the resurrection. Again, something we've covered in the past, but we'll be doing it from a bit of a fresh angle this time. So I hope you can join me for that at the same time next week here on the show that aims to get you thinking unbelievable. And I'll be back again in a moment's time for The Profile. The Profile.